Take your Bibles if you would, and for the first time in six Sundays, turn in them to the book of Colossians. We are approximately, almost halfway through this letter, I think 13 sermons so far, studying and seeking to learn its truths. And since December 11th, when we were last in Colossians, we have had Simeon's song studied. Chad and Chris shared that sermon if you were here. The good news of great joy on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. Hebrews 10 on New Year's Day that Chad preached. God's design for his church on January 8th with covenant renewal. And last Sunday, Keith brought to us how to pray like Paul for each other through examples from three of his prayers. Today, we're going to recap, remember, recall, pull back to mind, and synthesize and conglomerate together what we've been shown about Christ. In those glowing glories, we're going to pause and partake of the bread and cup. And then we'll come back and actually try to make headway through two more verses of Colossians, verses 16 and 17, where we just finished up reading. Always, through all of this, in case it hasn't been clear to you yet, we are looking for Christ. We are wanting to behold him. We are wanting to see and understand his glory more. And we are wanting that to buckle us in worship and awe and fixing our gaze ever more upon him. For, as we've noted other Sundays, our almost all our thoughts about Jesus are too small. Whatever you think about Christ, Kent Hughes reminded us, your conception of him is everything. Dan hammered that home in Sunday school as well. And then a reminder from Dane Ortland: the Christ of the Bible is not meant merely to be understood theologically, believed in creedally, read about intellectually, or shared evangelistically. He is to be adored. That requires sound doctrine. Man, how critical it is that we have that doctrine from the word accurately Bible-soaked. But doctrine is not an end in itself. We can reason and exegete people into right doctrine. But we should. Our deepest calling is to pray and disciple people, our children, our family, our friends, our small group, everybody in this body, every believer that we know, into seeing his irresistible beauty. It's my prayer and hope today and every Sunday as we open this glorious display of Christ Jesus the Lord. So once again, we're not there yet. We probably won't get there for another five, six, seven, eight, nine weeks. Colossians 3.16. Every Sunday, let these words of Christ that you're hearing dwell in you richly, richly, so that out of that, we're all spurred to teach and admonish each other in all wisdom. So, first of all, just a refreshing of our memories because we've taken a whole bunch of pieces and now we're just going to step back as a way to recall those but also as a way to let's put all of those together because verses 13, 14, 15 of chapter 2 just really, really bring us to this climactic point. So, for all who have believed in Christ Jesus by faith, repented of their sins. Chapter 2, verse 6 tells us we've received Christ Jesus. That's staggering truth. This is part of what 
earlier in the book, uh, Colossians referred to as God's mystery. And that's because these glories are so unseen by us and unrealized and underappreciated by us. So I'm praying that as we do this in a few minutes and then come to the Lord's table, it will, it will work mightily within you. We not only receive Christ, we receive these staggering riches and gifts of his, all as part of our salvation, not incrementally, not in part, not to different degrees. All who believe in him and repent receive these glorious gifts. Very quickly, way too quickly, Christ qualifies back in chapter 1, verse 12. He makes us qualified by his glory to be able to share in the inheritance. One thirteen, he delivers us out of a domain of darkness and doesn't just leave us there in no man's land. He transfers us into the most glorious place of all, his beloved son's kingdom. He redeems us in 1.14 and forgives our sins, which is repeated in chapter 2, verse 13. Verse 20 of chapter 1 and verse 22 particularly talk about his reconciling both all of nature, but also all those who believe in Christ. Does everybody understand my abbreviation? TWBIC is texting language. Those who believe in Christ. In case you're wondering, and it's keeping you from being able to just worship and thank him. 120, part of that redeeming and reconciling is that he makes peace between former enemies who, when they believe in Christ, are made at peace with God by his blood and body and flesh and dead death. 122, he then stunningly presents him to the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. 129, he energizes and powerfully works through all. Paul gives testimony to that. 2-3, we're offered because in him are all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge that we would need for this life and beyond. Chapter 2, verse 10. And I'm skipping over things that are descriptions of Christ in Colossians 1 that don't tie in directly to our salvation or quite as explicitly. So I've, met, I've gone past the image of the invisible God, the creator, and all of those glorious truths as well. So there's more than what I'm showing you here. 2.10, he fills us in Christ, with Christ, who is, we're told there, the fullness of God. 2.11, he circumcises or cuts away our flesh, our old nature, our heart. Verse 12 of chapter 2, he buries us with him baptizing us into him. He raises us from the dead, spiritually speaking, and makes us alive together with him. Pause. This isn't the Lord's table yet, but you'll see a little gap there. I want to just inject here. So both of these truths are realities. Humans are spiritually dead and lifeless if they don't have Christ and must be raised from spiritual death to spiritual eternal life with Christ. Simultaneously, when sinners come to Christ, they must be crucified. Their old nature that's so alive in them has to be killed. So even though it sounds like a seeming paradox, why sometimes do we talk about this aliveness and sometimes about this deadness? Both are realities, two different kinds of workings in salvation. Also, not only does Jesus die, be buried, and be raised for us, we 
when we believe in him, are dead, crucified, killed, buried, and then raised to new life by him and with him. We're not there yet, but in Colossians 3.3, you'll see the statement, you have died. And in Colossians 3.1, you'll see raised with Christ. So, Colossians is unpacking some phenomenal spiritual realities that are taking you now. Okay, back to the list to finish where we've gotten to, which is 2.15. He does this incredible work of canceling our massive record of debt, of our sin against him. He sets that aside, nails it to the cross, triumphs over all the evil ruler's authority, shames them, disarms them, and sets us free. As Steve Irwin used to say when he was alive, crikey! Crikey! This is incredible! Could Christ do anything more for us? Could Christ be anything more for us? And the resounding answer is no. He is all sufficient. He has provided everything. Everything that we get to have in our salvation comes through him. And look at this list. And that's just scratching the surface of phenomenal things. And I just want to say here, if if these are not realities for you, or if you've simply heard about people that got saved, we have made such shorthand of salvation that we fail to communicate and convey. And I realize a lot of them sound weird. A lot of them sound like, why? But I just want to encourage you, if you don't know Christ in this way and haven't received him in these gifts, we just urge you today, would you believe in him? Would you repent of your sin and come to experience a phenomenal salvation that has given us in God? All of this, every single one of these things is only able to be accomplished because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Or more specifically, as we come to the Lord's table, because of his body and his blood and his life, which was given to save us. Elders, would you come now and begin to distribute the elements, please? Now, I'm going to go on, because I have more I want to say about union with Christ. And I know it's hard to concentrate, because when that tray's near you, it's like, my turn, my turn, my turn, now, now, when, when, where is it going? Please, just don't worry if it gets messed up. Just try to focus, and I recognize also, I'm asking you to hold this about seven or eight minutes before we drink. I'm mostly worried about the grape juice. Uh, So hang on within that. Thank you. What Colossians is partly unpacking here is a doctrine that is never stated this way in Scripture. So hear that. Union with Christ. But I'm going to show you, we're going to look at scriptures that display this glory. And I want to just press on you, it is a phenomenal glory. John Piper puts it this way. Union with Christ is the center of our salvation and our sanctification and central to all our deepest joys in this life. Tim Savage, I think you can put the next slide up, Ayla. For too many Christians... Life in Christ is an underappreciated reality. And I would say perhaps an underexperienced reality. It may even be Christianity's best kept secret, which is not a good secret to keep. 
we need to get as much as we can by the Spirit's help our hearts and our minds around these stunning realities that are taking place where we can't visibly see them. But God is telling us this is what's going on. And so let's use his eyes, his revelation, to contemplate this even more. So one aspect of union with Christ is Christ in each believer. The only way that we can be saved is if Christ is in us in spirit. So Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Uh, Romans 6 really unpacks this and other passages as well. Um, but as Savage says here, the indwelling Christ, perhaps Christianity's capstone, and it's underscored in nearly all of Paul's letters. He asserts in his article 164 times. It is a tantalizing phrase with thrilling implications for the lives of believers. If you just think of it in terms of closeness and intimacy and fellowship and power and the promises of Christ being lived out inside of you spiritually. And secondly, the aspect of union of Christ means we, this is even perhaps more stunning, we are put into Christ. Christ takes us into himself to such a degree that verse 11 of Colossians 2 says we're circumcised by him. Verse 12, that we're buried with him. And 13, raised with him. Or if you go back to verse 10, you'll see that we are filled with him. Or if you glance your eyes over to chapter 3, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's going to be a fun Sunday when we impact that incredible statement. So this aspect shows us how we receive the righteousness of Christ because the Father sees us in his Son, in his perfect and holy Son. And that is the means of our righteousness, our justification. This is our security. Why he holds us fast is because he's taken us into his very self. Not to make us a God, but to make us his children. It's, it's just an incredible work. So, don't just think of Christ up there, though he is. Think of him in there, intimately. And don't just think of you approaching Christ, though you do, and there are scriptures that call us to that. Think also of the fact that you're already in Christ. You can't approach any closer. He is there, and you are there in him. So, Galatians 2.20 captures both of these realities together. Very familiar verse, and part of the reason why it's familiar to us is it really embodies the union. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's what every believer can say. There's no way we have life in Christ without being crucified with him spiritually. But at the same time, Christ lives in us me. And then in John 15, when Jesus was talking about the vine and the branches, abide in me, find your life in me, and I will abide in you. And both of those are equally necessary. All this is trying to press home is Christ is fully and completely all, everything to us. In fact, Colossians 3.11 has in it that three-word phrase, Christ is all. He's our everything. 
about how God relates to us and about how we relate to God. Piper again, there is no saving good, no eternal good, no God-exalting good, no soul-satisfying good that comes to us except as we are connected to Christ. And then Spurgeon, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Let me say again, all of this is only possible because of this and this in terms of what they symbolize and represent. So we're coming now to spend a couple of moments alone with the Lord. And let me just urge you, he's called us to remember on the cross and in the grave and resurrected him to rejoice in that, to repent in the meantime, and to worship him for all he has done. Let's now spend a couple of moments quietly exalting him, giving him glory, and bowing before him. Okay, now let's study Colossians. We've spent time looking in the rearview mirror. I'm going to do that just a second here to try to give us perspective. But let's turn now and look through the windshield, put the thing in drive, and proceed at least two more verses. Just reminders, Colossians basically is in thirds. There's about a third of it that's Christ's preeminence that's being declared. That's what we just spent time doing. And now we're in the midst of the second section, Christ's preeminence being defended against all kinds of potential underminings. And then, Lord willing, if we're still here and able, we will finish out the last third of Colossians with Christ's preeminence demanded or delivered, lived out in our lives. So, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3 to 8, really fast. Commendation to the Colossian church of their faith and love. Then verses 9 to 12, what we just prayed. For the growth spiritually for the glory of God. Then that big chunk chunk from 1, 12, 14, all the way through 2, 5, that I would argue is where Paul is making all of giving us all this proof, really goes even through verse 15 of the preeminence of Christ and how we, if you remember verses 2, 6 to 7, are kind of this transition. It's the first therefore that we see in Colossians. How all who receive all of these glories of Christ walk, notice, in him, Rooted, built up, notice, in him and established in the faith and abounding with thanksgiving. So Paul's concern now in this part of the letter is the walking wisely with all of these gifts and not getting deterred from them. So he's talked about things that are threats, things that are dangers for healthy Christian living um, that may look Sound, feel, seem spiritual, but he's going to point out don't actually help and may even hurt our ability to obey 2, 6, and 7 of walking, rooting, building up, and establishing. So we've heard the first warning back on December 4th from verse 8 that all worldly humanistic philosophy, key word, which is ways to approach trying to understand humans and human life, that all human attempts, humanistic ones, are empty, useless deceit. 
They mislead us. They take us into wrong thinking that isn't helping us be built up in Christ. So the ending of all of that is that it's not according to Christ. In other words, he is not the central factor in what the humanistic philosophy is saying. Most humanistic philosophy is rejecting them altogether. Perhaps the most dangerous ones for us are the ones who merge and blend those two things together, but we lose Christ and his preeminence in that. So it's any ways in which we're looking to humans, to this world, to societies, to organizations, to powerful people, to celebrities, to, to tricks and all those things that Paul is saying here offer no real value for maturing in Christ and will actually leave one infantile. And then verses 9 to 15 is where Paul says, he just takes us and says, look instead at the glories of Christ and what he has done. This is what will build you up in him. And he's just pressing home that we are not to follow man's thinking, certainly not our own, not necessarily other good sounding ones. Go deeper into the gospel and look at Christ and look at what he has done and think about its meaning and how it gives you identity and purpose. So now that brings us to verses 16 and 17, which is the second of potentially three or four warnings. And you can see by the outline in the lower half of that slide that we're beginning to un unpack some of those. Um, but all of this is essentially saying, so back up a slide if you would, Ayla, sorry. Uh, beware the temptation to turn to legalism. And in verse 17, that's shadows, turn instead to substance. Then, verses 18 and 19, beware of mysticism and, and mystical experiences instead of Christ. And verse 19, cling purely to Christ. And then if there is one more warning, and I don't know if verses 20 to 23 are kind of summarizing the whole section here, or perhaps touching on asceticism, that physical discipline as well, instead of focusing most on Christ. And I would say chapter 3, verse 1, and really 1 through 4, are really the conclusion to chapter 2, um, to if you've been raised with Christ, then focus your mind there on him. So, verse 16, warning number 2, we would, if we just briefly encapsulate it, would say legalism. Paul says, therefore, and notice this is the second therefore, he took so long on the first one, from, from verse uh, 5, through verse 15, that he says it again, therefore. But he's still carrying on this thought, but it really is the therefore for what he just described about the gospel. Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for you, because of all these realities, let no one pass judgment on you in questions. Don't let anybody, New American Standard says, act as your judge, as being the one who is telling you what is right or wrong, and they're the determiner. Don't let people condemn you and belittle you if you're not following their convictions, which aren't necessarily scripture. They might be scripturally based. They might be out of context. They might be a fragment of a bigger uh, explanation. But the point here is people can make you feel not saved because you're not doing these things or disobedient to God, sinning, because you're not doing these things they think you ought to do, or that you are in some way less godly, less spiritual, if you don't do the same things that they do. Now it seems here, it's primarily about the old covenant 
and some of the uh, aspects of it rather than focusing on what they're just beginning to see is the new covenant, the new law of Christ, and all that that means. So what law-keeping people love to do often is to impose upon other people their added laws that they think have made them more spiritual and they think will make you more spiritual if you'll follow those same rules or disciplines for your life. So they can look holier because of their rigid conformity in external disciplines and because they appear to keep more rules. God has Paul list four here that he's going to particularly touch on. We're going to try to find the balance because a lot of these we don't necessarily relate to, but understanding the context in which they flow and then as time allows, trying to make brief application to us. This is a topic that we could go Sunday after Sunday after on for a while. But basically, Paul touches on diet, and we see that here on the slide, the first things, food and drink, and then days or ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses. So food and drink probably refers to their commands not to touch unclean foods. So if you remember Peter in Acts 10 had to have a vision before he was going to Cornelius and to share the gospel with the Gentiles because he was going to be exposed to unclean food. And so he had to have this threefold vision. It took three visions to get it through to him. Oh, now I can eat all meats. Um, and again, this sense of that these shadowy parts of the Old Testament covenant made them holier than Christ has already made them in salvation. Now, it might also not have to do with that, and it might just be about people giving their opinions and their strong convictions about food and drink. So, when Paul writes Timothy in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, sorry, I forgot that reference. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, he talks about the fact that people are going to be listening to, and they're going to depart from the faith. It's going to take them that far away from Christ. And one of those things is they forbid marriage, and the second is they require abstinence from foods. So it's a basic idea of the more you abstain from, the more spiritual you are. That participation and enjoyment is not the goal, but denial is the goal. So you can see then that Paul tells Timothy, God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by all who know him and believe the truth. Everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because the word of God and prayer make it holy. So it's possible that it's just the belief that discipline, denials, and abstinence is better than spiritual enjoyment of things. And it might be for some of us, but it might not be for some of us. Okay, we'll come back to this, I think, if there's time. We're dying. Next section deals with special days. Festivals, new moons, Sabbath. So festivals are annual or once a year holy days commemorating God's past works, which were all shadows, such as the Exodus and some of those things that now have been fully fulfilled in Christ. The new moon were observances once a month, often involving sacrifices, 
And the Sabbath was a weekly occurrence of a holy day specified in the Ten Commandments with rules to rest from labor. Those may or may not, and the Sabbath is a little more still today a struggle, but the other ones may not relate to us as much, but they're creating commotion for the Jewish people, for Israel, because these things have become such a part of their identity and their way of life and the way that they, uh, you can see Kent Hughes, how it breaks it down, sensitizing them to purity, to aspects of Christ's work, to resting in Christ. These were shadows that we're beginning to teach them these things, but they were such routines, such a rhythm of their life, that they just couldn't break away from them easily. And again, remember the Apostle Peter and how massive of a work God had to do to get him to really realize it's okay. And I don't have time for this, but let's cut the Jews some slack here. Number one, they do not have the fulfilled, the complete word of God yet. This, these two sentences might be the only things that some of those believers got. How would you do if this was all the longer in the instruction you got? We got Romans 14, we've got Galatians 3, we've got Ephesians 1. We got lots of other things that help us understand these things much more. They may have had only this. And secondly, this has been part of their heritage for all of these years. And it's just, they, they, they just see it as wrong to give them up. They don't understand that Christ has come and completed them because they've been so ingrained in this. And then tr this transition over to the law of love, the law of Christ, the law of liberty was a very, very hard thing. So just pause here and thank the Lord, even if we don't look at any other scriptures on this, that we have far more to look at than Colossians 2, 16 and 17. That's his grace to us. So verse 17, God has Paul just in one very short sentence counter this so warning number one verse eight had six verses seven verses after it nine through 15 that dealt with that warning number two verse 16 just has one verse that responds to that really in full though I will argue that verses 20 to 23 I think are continuing to unpack some of this as well here's the point though you may see the clues to Christ's coming the shadows far more far longer very powerfully in your life, the shadows can never be more significant to you or equally significant to you as Christ himself. The person not only eclipses the shadow, but makes the shadow irrelevant. Here's my modern day illustration. Which is better? A couple getting the positive pregnancy test, the exciting doctor visits, the ultrasound pictures, the gender reveal party, or the baby. Paul's basic point is, why do you keep looking at the pictures? You've got the baby. Hold the baby. Enjoy the baby. The pictures are great when you didn't have the baby. But now that the baby's here, enjoy the baby. That's kind of the point if you can turn that over to applying it here to the point about the law and hanging on to remnants of it that were only to be used until Christ came. So then the punch point here is the substance. 
what all those things are really about that belongs to Christ. So in, in short, Christ owns these guidelines that you've been following. He instituted them for pointing to him until he came. But when he came, he retired them and they no longer needed to serve a purpose. So give it up. All of that's been swallowed up by him and his work. And that's why the line in chapter 2, verse 10 of Colossians is so important. You have been filled. You have all the fullness. You don't need the lesser shadows any longer. Or here's another way we might say it. You are free from having to build your life around these laws, these rules, these activities that used to be what you had to build your life around because you didn't have Christ yet. But now, build it around Christ. Let the other things go. Put your full focus on him because he is so much better. Ken Hughes, Paul's point is simple. True spirituality does not consist merely of keeping external rules, but of having an inner relationship with Jesus Christ. And then Tozer, and I really like this because of the word union in there from our earlier talking about union with Christ. True religion is removed from diet and days, from garments and ceremonies, and placed where it belongs, in the union of the spirit of men with the spirit of God. In short, we would kind of give the phrase, relationship over rules. There are still rules, critically important rules. When we get to Colossians 3, 5, you're going to, for a while there, for about eight Sundays, you're going to wonder, how do we do all these rules? It's not that Christianity is no rules. What God is distinguishing here is God's rules have authority over us. Man's added additional things, our human tendency to want these kinds of things and to impose them on others and perhaps think we're better because of them, that's what we have to be careful of. Let's never act as if Christ is not enough. It's something that religious leaders could never get through their heads or see. And what many other Jews, and what sadly too many Christians or professing Christians can't get past is either. Okay, I have about five minutes here that I'm going to cut out, but just to tell you, what, and you'll see them in the slides, so you'll get the notes. We could go to Romans 14, and Paul, or God has Paul unpack in Romans 14. There's people who think there's special diets and people who don't. There's people who think there's special days and people who don't. And basically his point is, we can function with both of those, and neither of us should be condemning the other. Um, you can see a very quick sketch or highlight there of the diets, and if you go to the next slide, you'll see some thoughts about uh, what Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians and others tell us about um, days and special days and even the Sabbath as well. So again, now that Christ has come, accomplished all he has, and we've had 2,000 years to process that. We have to, haven't had to live in the Mosaic Law. And he's now offering you infinitely better in himself than don't act as if other laws must be enforced if they are not from Christ and from his word. Brief conclusion. Uh, I have a lot more that I have to say than I'll probably say. But let me just give you, I think out of this passage, for our day and age... Number one, and it's interesting, the v verse 16 puts the ubris on the people being condemned. So 
I'm stepping out of that to say, don't be the condemner. Don't be the judger. Let's be careful here that we are not imposing on others a certain way of how to follow and glorify God that does not come directly from his word, but comes from either our traditions, our uh, personality, our way of doing things, uh, what we think is best. So, um, Romans 14, God addresses this as well. And I'll just start with that first question, like, who do you think you are? Who gives you some kind of special right to pass judgment on a server? If before God he stands, then he will be upheld. The Lord will make him stand. Don't think that following your rules is what will make him stand. I don't think it means we can't talk about these things. We see differences and humbly share and how we've come to those things. Like that's Colossians 3.16. Teach and admonish each other with all wisdom. But we must not look down on people with an attitude of the way I'm doing the Christian life is better than the way you're doing the Christian life if it's not based upon Scripture itself. So beware of thinking you're better spiritually or more spiritual because of how you do your devotions, because of how you care for your body, because of your church attendance or involvement, because of what you listen or read or who you listen to or read, because of your simplicity of lifestyle, because of how you pray. And right, we can go on and on and on and on. So many areas where God has not given us definitive distinctives, but liberty to practice. Matthew 7 just warns us, and again, we always want to see this rightly, that we're not judging in a critical, condemning way where we don't have business to be doing so. Be careful what and how you judge people for. For in some way that is beyond what we can understand, God will use that measure with us as well. And oh, we want mercy on the day of judgment. I will not have to answer, Eric Alexander says, for the position my brother may have held. I'll have to answer for the position I took on the position he held. Secondly, well, yeah, secondly, don't let others judging you, speaking critically of you, telling you're wrong just because of their telling you that or their authority or their powerful presence or whatever it might be. Where God hasn't given a clear command but liberty, don't let them pressure you into conforming to their convictions. Perhaps this speaks to people with people-pleasing tendencies. That you adjust and do things you won't necessarily see in scriptures God hasn't necessarily laid as a conviction on your heart as you've been in his word, but others are bringing those to you. And in order to either look good, better spiritually, to impress them, to get them off your back, like there's a lot of motives that we can have, right? That we begin to do things that aren't necessarily helping us spiritually, but they look like they might be. They look like the things that others are doing. And therefore, we may feel that they are okay, and they may actually be a shadow that's keeping us from the substance. If the Word of God tells you to start or stop doing certain things, then obey it. If other people start telling you to stop or doing, start doing things that you don't see prescribed by God in the Scripture, then be cautious, discerning. Take into account the whole counsel of God. Don't bring your prejudices to it, and don't bring other people's prejudices to it. And then finally, and this is the point, put your focus 
fully on Christ. He's the substance, the whole enchilada of our Christian life. Alistair Begg, we can't make what's central, Christ, peripheral, and we must not make what's peripheral central or take secondary issues and make them primary and primary issues and make them secondary and spend all of our time focused on the minutia. A few application questions I just want to encourage you to ponder through. They're pretty self-examining. Are there things you are doing in which you have made it more about your doing them than about Christ doing in you? Are you feeling like pleasing God by doing or not doing particular things when that actually possibly is not helping you abide in Christ anymore? Are you making your following of Christ more about the what or the what's, plural, than the who? Again, rules, rule-keeping, should flow out of love and relationship and not skip those things just for the sake of keeping rules. Are you aiming to grow more religious then you're aiming to know and enjoy Christ. You see the distinction. Do you have more of a business relationship with Christ or more of a familial friendship and intimacy with him? Do you measure spiritual growth by how much you are doing? And certainly there's visible fruit that flows out of Christ's work in us. But we can do the visible fruit, plastic fruit, without it genuinely being produced. Do you measure spiritual growth by how much you are doing or by your closeness to Christ and your conformity to his word and his nature? Do you look for an object or an activity to grow you more than you look for Christ to grow you? And a simple example of that is the Lord's table. Is it more about the physical, tangible things? Are you missing Christ because you just think there's some kind of magic in the bread and some kind of magic in the cup. Or when we had a mural here that filled this wall, and I had people tell me, when I really, really feel close to God is when I look at those eyes. See how we take what's tangible, because we're very tactile people, and we lose Christ in that. And then finally, do you see the fruit of righteousness in your life as your keeping of rules or as Christ's empowering you to keep his rules? And do you see others' righteousness coming from living like you do or from Christ? I think the warning here is for many of us, as you live out convictions that really are helpful for you, be careful you don't feel spiritually superior to those who do it differently. Careful you don't pressure others to conform. Make converts for yourself out of those. And certainly, most of all, don't ever think it contributes to your salvation in a way that Christ has not fully accomplished already. Could Christ be anything more for us? No. Could Christ do anything more for us? No. He is supremely everything. I've used this quote many times, but I'll use it again by Garrett Dawson. God has nothing else to give us. Do you hear that? 
than what he gives us in Jesus. But getting Jesus is getting everything. Or, as we sang just last week, all, 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 everything I have, everything is banked upon Christ, and that is all sufficient. Hallelujah. Christ is all for our salvation. Christ is all for our sanctification. Christ is all for our glorification. Fix your eyes fully with faith on Christ. Colossians 3, 4 will tell us he is your life. You have no life spiritually apart from Christ doing it all. So beware of distractions. Beware of bunny trails that take you wrong places. Beware of things that don't help you keep fully focused on Christ.